Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to part two of Embracing Your Fear and Moving Forward. In the last episode, we touched on the neuroscience behind anxiety and fear and how the worry circuit works in the brain, as well as how this feedback loop of internal dialogue, you know, what we're saying to ourselves is actually self-reinforcing. And as long as this thought process is allowed to have control, these thoughts will become stronger and stronger and stronger, which means our feelings of fear and anxiety will continue to become stronger as well, since thoughts come first and feelings come second. In this week's episode, we'll expand on this by discussing how we can actually develop a fear-based mindset, especially when we are faced with any kind of scarcity. So during this current pandemic crisis, uh, as we live so rurally, I've had the good fortune to take lots of walks in the woods with our golden retriever, for which I am very grateful And over the last week, I've just given thought to this particular episode, and right out of the gate, I was brought back to middle school um, and American history class, and uh, remembering that very famous quote by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who I think many would, would agree was definitely one of our greatest American presidents. That quote where he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You know, I think about how I may have processed these words back in seventh grade. And though I certainly couldn't remember exactly now, I know that it would be much different than how I process these words now at 55 years old and after raising five kids and now being in the midst of this global crisis that involves so much scarcity and therefore so much fear. When FDR delivered his famous inaugural address in 1933, he actually even said a little more than this. He said, first of all, let me assert from my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert, retreat into advance. So, you know, certainly kids obviously can get fear. They can be bitten by a dog, you know, all the way up to, you know, something trauma related. They can absolutely understand fear. I just don't know if that's the same as how we process this um, as seasoned grown-ups, especially when we're responsible for other people, you know, children, aging parents, it's just, it's a game changer. And this idea that FDR says in his inaugural address about how the only thing to fear is fear itself because of of the paralyzing, just crippling intensity, you know, it just kind of, it seems kind of reside in the upper torso area too, this just tightness. And I liked how he said how it prevents us from converting, you know, 
retreat into advance, how this, this overwhelming emotion stops us, tries to stop us from moving forward. I then read a little further, you know, just for kicks and was sort of grabbed, you know, by all the obvious parallels. And uh, FDR continues to say, you know, more importantly, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. And FDR further touches on, you know, families wiping out their savings, farmers not having consumers for their crops, you know, sort of leading us directly to that concept of scarcity and what this does to the human condition. And by scarcity, we mean having less than you feel you need. And there's a good read out there called Scarcity. Why Having Too Little Means So Much by Sinhil Molinathan and Eldar Shafir. The authors go on to explain that scarcity is a broad concept. The problem of unemployment, for example, is also the problem of financial scarcity. The loss of a job makes a household's budget suddenly tight. Too little income to cover the mortgage, car payments, and day-to-day expenses. The problem of increasing social isolation is a form of social scarcity, of people having too few social bonds. The problem of obesity is also, perhaps counterintuitively, a problem of scarcity. Sticking to a diet requires coping with the challenge of having less to eat than you feel accustomed to. A tight calorie budget or calorie scarcity. The problem of global poverty. The tragedy of multitudes of people around the world making do with a dollar or two a day is another kind of financial scarcity. Unlike the sudden and possibly fleeting tightening of one's budget due to job loss, poverty means a perpetually tight budget. What I found fascinating about how the authors talk about scarcity is that it's not so much about what we're lacking, the food, the money, the social relationships, or the time, but more about what it does to our mind and how, it, how scarcity takes over. We become conditioned to being in this place of being fear-based, and it not only governs whatever it is we feel we're not getting enough of, but actually takes over our perception in general. And it's, it has a lot to do with what we look for and see and then how we react and respond. The authors uh, illustrate how this works by a study that was done way back towards the tail end of World War II when the Allies were getting ready to advance into German-occupied territories and knew they would encounter, obviously, large numbers of people on the edge of starvation. And the problem was not food, but like how how to safely feed people 
who have been on the edge of starvation for so long. So a team of researchers at the University of Minnesota began a study, again, this is back at the end of World War II, so I'll go out on a limb here and say it was probably before many of the ethical guidelines were put into place, even though their intentions were good. Uh, They set out to find out, once again, what was the safest way to, um, to feed people that had been so deprived of food for so long. So the experiment started with healthy male volunteers in a very controlled environment where their calories were reduced until they were subsisting on just enough food so as not to permanently harm themselves. And then after a few months of this, the real experiment began, finding out how their bodies responded to different food regimens. Though the researchers cared mostly about the feeding part of the study, they also measured the impact of starvation. Much of what happens to starving bodies is quite graphic. Subjects lost so much fat on their butts that sitting became painful. The men had to use pillows. Actual weight loss was complicated by edema. The men accumulated as much as 14 pounds of extra fluid due to starvation. Their metabolism slowed by 40%. They lost strength and endurance. As one subject put it, I notice the weakness in my arms when I wash my hair in the shower. They become completely fatigued in the course of this simple operation. Once again, this is what we would sadly sort of expect from chronic starvation. What was more of a surprise was how the men described their thinking. A good uh, illustration of this is described by Sharman Apt Russell in her book, Hunger, she says that the men became impatient waiting in line if the service was slow. They were possessive about their food. Some hunched over their trays using their arms to protect their meal. Mostly they were silent with the concentration that eating deserved. Dislikes for certain foods such as rutabagas disappeared. All food was eaten to the last bite. Then they licked their plates. And of course, I I think most people are aware of the horrible, heinous atrocities that occurred during the Holocaust, as well as, uh, you know, what long-term starvation does to the body. Uh, It just, the the authors shed light on, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that in, in addition to this, the brain actually changes and adjusts to this scarcity of food in a way that it perceives the incoming information, even if it doesn't have at all anything to do with food, we take that in and it goes through this sort of scarcity filter. And then we then react and respond based on this newly adjusted cognitive environment. They were focused on food, which of course, if you're starving, getting more food should be a priority but their minds focused in a way that transcended practical benefits. The delusions of starting a restaurant, comparing food prices, and researching cookbooks will not alleviate hunger. If anything, all this thinking about food, almost a fixation, surely heightened the pain of hunger. They did not choose this. And then there's one of the men in the Minnesota study, 
Uh, he talks about his frustration when he says, I didn't know many other things in my life that I looked forward to being over with any more than this experiment. And it wasn't so much because of physical discomfort, but because it made food the most important thing in my life. Food became the one central and only thing really in one's life. And life is pretty dull if that's the only thing. I mean, if you, want to, if you went out to a movie, you weren't particularly interested in the love scenes, but you noticed every time they ate and what they ate. So the authors go on to explain that here's the thing. These, these hungry men in this study didn't choose for the ideas of food, the thoughts of food, the visuals of food to just completely take over. What happened was is that scarcity captured their minds. Just as the starving subjects had food on their mind, when we experience scarcity of any kind, we become absorbed by it. The mind orients automatically, powerfully toward unfulfilled needs. For the hungry, that need is food. For the busy, it might be a project that needs to be finished. For the cash-strapped, it might be this month's rent payment. For the lonely, a lack of companionship. Scarcity is more than just the displeasure of having very little. It changes how we think. It imposes itself on our minds. So here's where I would say to my students, all right, this is time for the application of whatever theory we're talking about um, and, and then applying it to the topic of our discussion. You know, sort of let's bring it home and make it, make it real for us, make it relatable to what, uh, we're, we're, what's currently going on which is obviously uh, what we're all dealing with right now is a pandemic. And I'm resisting saying global pandemic since we've got one of our recent college graduates walking around reminding me that this is redundant because the word global is inherent in the word pandemic. We've got a lot of togetherness right now. Of course, uh, a crisis of this magnitude very quickly, immediately separates the haves from the have-nots. And for an adult who's somehow been conditioned along the way into this place of fear-based thinking and a mindset of scarcity, it doesn't take much to revert them right back to this place. And this is evident by the empty shelves in grocery stores across the U.S., especially uh, it's kind of become a, you know, kind of a joke about toilet paper. Can't find it anywhere because people are, are hoarding it. And there are signs up, um, you know, saying limit one per customer now to kind of remind us that we don't need to do this. And in our small little tiny country store in our town, Instead of saying, you know, limit one per customer, it's a very personal note from the store owner that says, you know, please be mindful during these difficult times to take only what you absolutely need. And this can present a real challenge to the fear-based mind because there's a good person under there 
knowing that there are lots of people, lots and lots and lots of people who don't have enough and who are barely making it. And yet the brain is in this, you know, autopilot saying, no, grab all the toilet paper you can. This is an emergency. This is an emergency. Did you hear me? Ding, 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 ding. <clears throat> and this other thing is that this fear is, is generalized. It's not just about the money. It can be. And it can also be, you know, this slow burn of, okay, yeah, I have enough right now, but I, I could lose my job any minute now. Maybe I did lose my job. And what if I can't get another one? What if my partner loses their job too? Then we're really screwed. And what if I'm a single parent and I'm it? What if I lose my job or I already did and I just applied for unemployment? Grab the toilet paper, grab the toilet paper. It may, this may be it. Um, what if I, what if I am in my fifties and just lost my job and I worked, you know, my whole life to build this career? Who's going to hire me at 55? What if, what if I never get another job or what if I do, but it's in nowhere near enough to support my house? What if I lose my house? What if I, I don't ever had to have this nice friends group I had at work ever again? Um, what if I get evicted from my apartment? This fear-based panic also ties right in with Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. And I'll tell you that Abraham Maslow is my all-time favorite psychologist. And because he can just relate to everybody, I just like he's just so down to earth and actually falls in the category of humanistic uh, psychologists. And his very famous hierarchy of needs, you know, picture a pyramid, you know, like in Egypt, and there are originally six tiers. You also often see five. I'm not sure if Abe gave his permission for that, but uh, the bottom, bottom tier, and they do go into pecking order. So the bottom tier is physiological needs, our physiological needs. The next one is safety. The one above that is love slash belonging. The one after that is esteem. After that, self-actualization. And then the top is self-transcendence, which is often missing on some. I think it definitely belongs there. So anyway, the very, the one that's first is our physiological needs. And the point that Abe says is that we cannot move an inch without having our, our physiological needs met first. Food, water, sex, sex meant for the reproductive piece and uh, keeping the species going, not necessarily you know, um, pleasing our, our happy place. And, and it's truth right there because after that is safety. That's a very close second. So this means that the third one up there, sense of love and belonging, you know, being concerned about going out with the girls, you know, golfing, bowling, you know, happy hour, whatever. We are not in any way focused on the social piece and what those needs are when we're about to be evicted. And when we may not have enough food for tonight, never mind tomorrow, never mind water, we get stuck in this place when we're hungry of cannot think about anything else, which goes along with the authors of scarcity. And <clears throat> with this current pandemic, <clears throat> excuse me, with this current pandemic, we this just becomes just so exemplified. What's also interesting is, is someone could have you know, been conditioned early on and be sort of, 
you know, cranking along just fine. And I'm thinking of a friend of mine who is also a colleague. She's a professor and she's been very open um, about growing up in a rural area and very, very poor. And her parents, they were a close family, actually. The parents, you know, uh, were doing everything they could. They had a large family. And she told me about nights where her mom would just explain to her, you know, we've got a few more days until the food stamps, um, you know, uh, are there because it's the first of the month. And she remembers being told that all there was was popcorn in that, that night. And, you know, they were taught to be grateful. And she said sometimes it would be three nights in a row of popcorn for dinner until uh, the day they could go and get food at the store. And she also told me, here she is, here, here she's a professional person, she has a house, a partner, and she said, she explained to me how, you know, she'd be flying along just fine, and it doesn't take much to flip the switch and have her land right back there. And, and like we've been talking about, it doesn't have to necessarily be a food thing or a money thing, but she's very clear that she she reverts right back to, you know, um, not having enough and feeling the need to, to, you know, be in survival mode and, and grab whatever she needs to grab for her. It's usually food. And she, you know, of course is now able to talk, kind of talk herself through that. And she, and she does this with, uh, you know, very well at this point, she has just been very clear that it's taken her a very long time to get to this place, to talk herself through, um, you know, sort of the irrationality of this place in her life that she doesn't need to, you know, allow these thoughts to, to take over anymore. So this goes along with what we've been saying all the way along through the episodes with the worry circuit and the amygdala flipping the switch on the, on the threat circuit, alerting us to danger. The scarcity mind kicks into gear for survival reasons so that, you know, with that, the species will, you know, continue to make it. And the authors of the scarcity book explain that when scarcity captures the mind, we become more attentive and efficient. There are many situations in our lives where maintaining focus can be challenging. We procrastinate at work because we keep getting distracted. We buy overpriced items at the grocery store because our minds are elsewhere. A tight deadline or a shortage of cash focuses us on the task at hand. With our minds riveted, we are less prone to careless error. And this makes perfect sense. Scarcity captures us because it is important, worthy of our attention. The authors go on to say that we, can, we can't fully choose when our minds will be riveted. We think about that impending project, not only when we sit down to work on it, but also when we are at home trying to help our child with her homework. The same automatic capture that helps us focus becomes a burden in the rest of life. Because we are preoccupied by scarcity, because our minds constantly return to it, we have less mind to give to the rest of life. This is more than a metaphor. We can directly measure mental capacity, or as we call it, bandwidth. We can measure fluid intelligence, a key source that affects how we process information and decisions. 
We can measure executive control, a key resource that affects how impulsive, how impulsively we behave. And we find that scarcity reduces all these components of bandwidth. It makes us less insightful, less forward thinking, less controlled. And the effects are large. Being poor, for example, reduces a person's cognitive capacity more than going one full night without sleep. It is not that the poor have less bandwidth as individuals. Rather, it is that the experience of poverty reduces anyone's bandwidth. So I'd like to make a shift here to what we start out talking about earlier, which is sort of the connection between fear-based thinking and deprivation and how uh, this can lead someone also into a deprivation-based mindset. And remember that this doesn't necessarily have to be about money or food. If you remember, scarcity is about, you know, our own perception of we, we had less than we feel we needed. So that can be food and money again, and all the things related to food and money. And it can also be emotional. We can be emotionally deprived. And it doesn't have to be that we were completely neglected. That can be the case too. And it can be that we had some love, though not as much as, as we feel we needed. And if we are deprived of you know, positive messages as a child, we can walk around as adults feeling, you know, deprived of positive self-esteem on the inside. And, and sort of, there are obviously lots of examples of this. One of our, you know, sort of a classic example would be the workaholic where she or, or he um, or they are, you know, filling up every second of their day. I'm thinking, I'm from New York, so I'm thinking Wall Street, just go, 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 and getting lots of positive for this, lots of kudos. Look at them go, look at them go, you know, with the title and the money that comes along with the title and, uh, you know, sort of looking at this as um, a gigantic success, which it is in some ways, yet sometimes, not always, of course, sometimes the drive for this is coming from a place of emotional deprivation where this adults, maybe being in the thirties, forties, fifties or higher is, you know, sort of frantically, just like with the toilet paper on the shelf, frantically searching for internal feel good esteem needs by all this external reinforcement. Another example it might be um, arrogance in general, and maybe to an extreme degree, sort of the elitist persona, someone who maybe, you know, perceives themselves to be better than other people, you know, stereo- stereotypically maybe um, being focused on a lot of image type things and, and, you know, brands, nice clothes, nice this, nice that. And certainly, disclaimer, not saying you know, everyone, you know, with money is an elitist. I'm so not saying that. We're talking about a type of, of, of uh, you know, persona that, that can stem out of deprivation sometimes. And typically, 
you know, arrogance in general, there's typically some, some shame underlying this person with, uh, you know, sort of feelings of feeling less than um, inadequate, or as we said earlier, you know, defective in some way. In fact, I've, I've explained it to students is arrogance can be um, sort of a, a hideout for shame, kind of masking it. I, I tell them to kind of picture a, a tree fort. You know, sometimes shame is right out there and we can all tell that somebody is feeling less than. And then at other times it masks itself into something that looks, you know, the polar opposite. It looks like somebody is, you know, feeling on top of the world and, and you know, better than other people, elevated over other people. And again, often, not always, it's the exact opposite. Um, and it's masking feelings of shame and deprivation underneath. And my last example, although there are more, uh, is with adult children of alcoholics, as typically addicted families are often, you know, honor deprived. There's often been a lot of embarrassment along the way, uh, humiliation. And when children grow up with this, they often find themselves as young adults, older adults, seasoned adults, as, you know, trying to get some of that honor back, especially uh, for the oldest in the family. It can be anybody, but if, if that adult child, you know, took on the role as the responsible child in the family, this is even more so. And there are actually certain professions that are kind of magnets for the adult child of an alcoholic and specifically the responsible child. And one of these um, is anything that involves a uniform. So firefighters, police, military, for sure. Again, we're not saying all military and all firefighters, blah, 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 come from an addictive family. However, this is, like I said, a magnet for adult children of alcoholics. Also, anybody in the helping profession, so counselors, therapists, doctors, nurses, again, not everybody. And it's, uh, it's definitely, they're definitely well represented, put it that way. And it makes great sense when, a, when an adult child is feeling honor deprived. Think about it with the uniform or, or somebody comes home from defending this wonderful country of ours with a purple heart. You know, if I'm not feeling honor on the inside, hey, just look at my outside. Look at my uniform. Look at me. I'm a cop. I'm a firefighter. I'm defending this country. Look at my medals. Look at, look at me. This is where my honor is. I'm wearing it on the outside. And as far as the, let's pick the doctor or nurse, especially right now. I mean, there's just the heroes right now as well, as well in my opinion, as well as everybody working at, you know, Hannaford's and gas stations and everything else for sure. Um, but specifically with our example, um, think about a doctor who's, who grew up as a child in an alcoholic family and honor deprived and is determined, you know, to, to be a physician and a healer. And it doesn't mean that's all that went into it. However, typically it's a big driving force. Just think about it. It makes so much sense. If you, if you don't want me, you're sure as heck going to need me. So discussing these other examples, 
brings us right back to the connection between fear-based thinking and deprivation and how this kind of relates to the whole scarcity thing. So the examples of, you know, somebody with the elitist persona, the adult child with alcohol of alcoholics being honor deprived, the, all of this, what we're talking about these different examples is, is quite sort of an outward manifestation of, uh, or the toilet paper crisis is an outward manifestation of all of this because scarcity is scarcity. It's not about money necessarily. It's a mindset. It's, uh, it's fear, fear of, of being back in that place of being afraid. We are not going to have enough of whatever it is, money, love, time, relationships, honor, whatever. It's fear that this feeling, this paralyzing feeling can return. So in the midst of this pandemic crisis, once again, it's no big surprise that there's a shortage of, of things. And at the same time, I think it's good to have this awareness after this talk that there are lots and lots and lots of people who are walking around with very amped up limbic systems with their worry circuits in full tilt because it doesn't take much to flip the switch on somebody who's fear-based or deprivation-based to begin with. And something as, you know, sort of severe as what we're all going through right now has me uh, thinking that the numbers of people walking around, functioning, you know, from the outside looking in, can't even tell necessarily that are really, you know, walking around, you know, pretty overwhelmed with very raw fear-based feelings. So here's the thing. All varieties of scarcity result in a shortage of bandwidth and kind of leads to a scarcity trap. One of these big consequences is it affects us in daily life with our executive functioning as far as being able to plan, answer emails, things like balance a checkbook, even estimating the amount in our bank account, um, registering the car, you know, ba 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 ba. So the authors of, of the scarcity book basically say that their argument is simple, and that's that scarcity captures our attention. And this provides a narrow benefit because we do better at a job of, you know, our tasks and managing whatever pressing needs we may, we may have. But more broadly, it costs us as we become less effective in the rest of our lives and less attentive. You know, less attentive, as the author said earlier, with you know, reading to a child and our head is in our, you know, whatever our fear is with losing our job and such, uh, therefore having us less emotionally available. So what do we do about these fear-based thoughts? And you know, we've come up with some strategies on the last few episodes, and one of the big ones is very deliberate, purposeful breathing, is one of my students used to say with puffy lungs, because, and this just isn't like a, you know, touchy-feely, non-remedy remedy. It's very, very real, because neurologically speaking, 
when we take a big, intentional, deliberate breath, the mind is immediately, immediately brought back into the body. Out of next Tuesday, next month, you know, tomorrow when you're going to have a chat with your boss about if your, you know, your business is going to open again in 30 days, it takes our minds right out of there, brings them back into our bodies or takes them out of, you know, last week, last year, two years ago. And because again, anxiety comes from thinking about the past, the past or the future. So if we are 100% invested in this present moment, theoretically, there should be no anxiety. Emphasis on 100%, not 95. There should be no anxiety. And once again, one thing I like about mindfulness, which is so different from all these other meditations out there, and certainly those are all good too, kind of whatever works for you. There's standing ones, sitting ones, mountain ones, river ones, blah, 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 blah. Uh, for me, I like mindfulness because it's non judgmental and I can take it with me. Because I'm definitely not the type to sit still for very long. In fact, I think sitting is rather overrated. And I relax when in motion, running and skiing and hiking in the woods and things like that. And the beauty of mindfulness is it's about being in the moment with whatever you're doing, in a conversation, in the shower, hiking, skiing, cooking, eating. It's all about being in the moment and enjoying whatever you're doing and with whomever you're doing it with in this moment. And the thing is, from a working memory standpoint, uh, truth right here is the only things that are going to make it into long-term memory, which is basically, you know, the bookshelves of our minds, the only things that are going to make it onto the bookshelves, we can retrieve them later, are the things we are attenuating to. So anything we're not paying attention to, is going right out the door, stage left. So if we want this conversation to stick, this quality time with our child reading a book to stick, you know, surprise, you know, friend at the door, that valuable moment to stick, you know, hunting with granny, whatever it is, we have to be attenuating to it. So if we go back to thinking about what we were just saying with scarcity and the effects it has on our bandwidth in dramatically reducing our ability to be emotionally available. I mean, just think about this and how important it is to be mindful. Um, a calm mind is a powerful mind. And a very busy, over-busy mind is most typically a very sad mind. So I'm going to uh, read you a little something from Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. If you've ever... Um, read his books or watched him on, he's got some YouTubes out there. He's absolutely amazing. He's, he's so good. I strongly encourage you the power of now. And, uh, I think it's newer. If I forget the other one, it's on my shelf. Anyway, Eckhart says, uh, are you worried? Do you have many? What if thoughts? If so, you are identified with your mind which is projecting itself into an imaginary future situation and creating fear. There is no way you can cope with such a situation because it doesn't exist. It's a mental phantom. You can stop this health and life corroding insanity simply by acknowledging the present moment. 
Become aware of your breathing. Feel the air flowing in and out of your body. Feel your inner energy field. All that you ever have to deal with, cope with in real life, as opposed to imaginary mind projections, is this moment. Ask yourself what problem you have right now. Not next year, tomorrow, or five minutes from now. What is wrong with this moment? You can always cope with the now, but you can never cope with the future. Nor do you have to. The answer, the strength, the right action, or the resource will be there when you need it. Not before and not after. And this brings me back to uh, my personal favorite definition of stress. And there are a lot of them out there. Which is that stress is wanting the present moment to be something other than it is. And it's only when we accept that the present moment is what it is um, that the stress actually dissipates. And just think about how much sense this makes if we take the example of blowing a tire on a highway. Let's say cell phone's dead. Most often we are on our way to somewhere, right? It might be work, a date, school, whatever. It's not the blown tire that's causing us stress. It's that we're going to be late. Somebody's expecting us. We're going to get in trouble with the boss. Um, Somebody might stop to help us who's sketchy or no one tries to help us. It's getting dark. The money, the tire is going to cost. It's not the actual tire blowing that's causing the stress. And another example I'm thinking of was years and years ago. I remember Oprah saying something about when she was knocked flat on her back with the flu, you know, not a little sick as in no matter even no matter what, she could not get up. And she had some very important something to be at. And she was just so stressed out because it was so important. And it was something very meaningful. I don't remember what it was, but something that had a lot of meaning. It was big and huge. And she just, she, she spoke about it. Eventually, she just had to come to terms with, you know, I'm flat on back with my flu. This isn't going to happen. It's not in the cards. It's not physically possible. And it was, you know, not until the moment that she accepted that whatever it was wasn't going to happen, that she kind of, you know, became at peace with it. And then she began to talk about how um, her partner Stedman was, you know, bringing her hot tea and, and sitting next to her. She got to read a book, which she hasn't, you know, read, she hadn't read a book in a really long time. And kind of once she started to feel a little better, she's, you know, she kind of uh, made it uh, by accepting this sort of looked at the present moment differently and that she got to spend this time with him and, and take this time to um, nurture herself when she was so sick. And, you know, as far as uh, stress being, you know, wanting the present moment to be something other than it is also goes along with what we were saying earlier when Carl Jung said, earlier, 
that which we resist will persist. And when we're wrestling with the present moment, trying to change it into what we want it to be, you know, give all that energy to trying to change something we have no control over, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. This also brings us back to the basics of thoughts come first and feelings come second. So if we are allowing fear-based thoughts, we are then going to feel fear. And we are then going to grab all the toilet paper we can off the shelf. This is how it works. Uh, which leads us into, once again, there are only two choices as far as this goes. We can control our thoughts or our thoughts control us. And once again, no one said this is easy. Practicing thought control takes commitment and effort. And then, of course, follow through because what we practice, no matter what this is, we inevitably will get good at. And not only this, but it'll, it will get easier. We'll have to put in less energy the longer we stay with it. So if we relate this to what's currently going on right now, just think about this. There's nothing like a pandemic, a global crisis, and the resulting quarantine to force us to maybe get a little better at embracing the present moment. And in the midst of all this suffering and and scarcity, as we talked about, you know, maybe the bless in the mess for us, for humanity, maybe, is that we're being redirected you know, back to the basics, to a more simple way of living, you know, in a, a higher quality of life. And people are taking walks, especially with dogs. I know Giovanni, our golden retriever, is a huge fan of quarantine. People are playing board games, baking cookies, and also getting really, really creative. And and the people are really, you know, extending so much kindness and goodness out there. I, uh, I know that, uh, at least in Vermont, and I'm sure all over the, the country in different areas, people are driving school buses here to families who, you know, d- literally don't have any food right now. And people are making masks for, for the heroes on the front lines of um, hospitals and, and healthcare. Uh, places just doing so much to to try to to help each other out. The medical heroes, all inclusive, you know, nurses, doctors, medical assistants, um, pharmacists, everybody, and again, the, the the folks working in the grocery stores, gas stations, all of this are doing these, you know, twelve, fourteen hour shifts, you know, just going above and beyond, and and people helping, just people helping people. And uh, I think that there's, there's definitely um, some blessing in this. And that said, I think it would be very fitting to 
wind up our discussion with FDR as well, since this is how we started. And this great American president says, happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of creative effort. The joy and moral stimulation of work no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent profits. These dark days will be worth all they cost us if they teach us that our true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves and to our fellow men. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.